This is the Monday, March 14th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, our time machine touches down on one of America's darkest days. The occupation of Washington, D.C. by British troops, and the burning of the White House, Capitol, and a few other public buildings. We'll meet the man whose torches did the deed, British Major General Robert Ross. A horseman, prankster, loving husband and daring commander who served under Wellington. Ross has fallen into obscurity in the two centuries since the War of 1812, pitted the mother country against the brand new American Republic. But with the bicentennial, two authors have resurrected Ross's tale, and it's one that will surprise many of us who assume that a man who committed such an outrage must have been a one-dimensional Hollywood villain. Our guides are Northern Ireland's John McCabot, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, and Baltimore's Christopher T. George, vice president of the 1812 Consortium and founding editor of the Journal of the War of 1812. They are co-authors of The Man Who Captured Washington, Major General Robert Ross and the War of 1812. You can follow them on Twitter at John underscore McCabot and C. Thompson George, or visit their website themanwhocapturedwashington.com. Okay, now that we've filled our haversacks and formed up for battle, let's travel back to the War of 1812 and meet the man who captured Washington. I'm joined on the line by the co-authors of The Man Who Captured Washington, Major General Robert Ross and the War of 1812. First up, John McCabot calling from Ross Trevor, and you'll have to tell me if I got that right. That's a town in Northern Ireland. Thank you for dialing in all the way clear across the Atlantic to be with us today, and how's my pronunciation? You're doing just fine. Yes, <laughs> and delighted to join you from Ross Trevor here in Northern Ireland. It was originally spelt with two S's because the village was owned by General Ross's family. Today, it's only got one S, so there's a big connection there in terms of the story we're talking about this evening. And I look forward to that. I love the idea of local forgotten hero. You and your co-author, Christopher T. George, have brought him back to life, given him sort of the biography that he's been needing for 200 years. Christopher, you're calling from a little closer to the scene of the action, Baltimore, Maryland, but people will notice that your accent is not a Maryland accent. So thank you for joining us and welcome to the History Author Show. Thank you, Dean. Uh, actually, I am... Um Liverpool-born, so I'm British, and I always say that I have divided loyalties about <laughs> the War of 1812. Well, I think that 
when you look back over 200 years and you look back from our modern perspective, you have that great affection for the mother country. And I think really Major General Ross is one of those people that you can look at and say, whichever side you were on at the time, you can admire his gallantry. You can admire the mercy that he shows the people of Washington, even after his horse is shot out from under him, which he's carrying a flag of truce at the time. So it would have been within his rights and the rules of war to lay waste to the entire city. But he doesn't do that. He shows restraint. He shows mercy. He's a man of good mirth. And I really enjoyed very much the man who captured Washington. And I would point out to people that the title is not the man who burned Washington because he does show that restraint. He focuses on the public buildings. People may be aware that he spares, for instance, the patent office because the ladies of Washington, D.C. argue with him and say, hey, this is private property, not public property. He's, he's really trying to do the right thing here. John, let me start on the United Kingdom side. How and why did you first get interested in the service of General Ross? Well, locally here, there is an obelisk to General Ross in Restrever. So I'm living here for the past 28 years. So I'm living in that village and I go past it every day. So I'd always intended to find out more about him, but I was busy doing other projects here on Irish history. But back in 1995, I'm sure you remember the Million Man March. Uh, my wife and I were at the Capitol in Washington that day, and uh, we were being given a tour around the Capitol, and the tour guide pointed out a fresco on the ceiling, General Ross from Ross Trevor burning the Capitol and other public buildings. So from 1995 until I started doing serious research in 2008, I'd always intended to find out more about this man who came from the local village and to see about his life. He really is a man who's worth learning about. It may sound odd. Many people in history don't leave much of a record. Many of them don't leave a mark. We tend to focus on big, flashy figures in history. And somebody like General Ross, who is going about his duty, he really is sort of a gem that you find in history. I, I love to find people in history who have been kind of forgotten, but you can meet them and say, this puts this entire perspective as, of this bizarre burning of the Capitol, which is so strange, I think, to the modern American mind and has been for many years into perspective because you meet a person who's worth knowing, I think you'd probably both say, wouldn't you? Well, I would very much. I mean, I, my original work here in Irish history was on the flight of the Earls, a hugely important event here. Absolutely extraordinary event. And I never thought I would come across a topic as interesting again. And I have to say, researching the career of General Ross has been every bit as interesting. Absolutely fascinating character. And Christopher, I'll leave it to you to tell the story of how the idea for the man who captured Washington came about and how the two of you from different places geographically joined forces to write it. I wrote a book in the 1990s called Terror on the Chesapeake, the War of 1812 on the Bay. And I actually visited Ross Trevor in 1992. And at that time, uh, General Ross's monument on the shoreline was painted with graffiti on all four sides and very overgrown. I'm delighted to say that recently the local council has renovated it very beautifully and they're hoping that American tourists will come and see it. So at that time, I didn't know John. It's only been more recent that we've got together. But my story is that I have lived in the United States most of my life, and I uh, had known about the bombardment of Fort McHenry, but I had not known 
that the British landed an army uh, near Baltimore to try to attack the city, and the British general was killed. And I just got very fascinated with that story. And uh, when I heard that John was also researching General Ross, it seemed to be a natural fit that we get together and write a biography of this courageous man. It was a void in historical record that he's not remembered and he's not known. He's just sort of this name. And I enjoyed that in your book. I like to find out when I'm wrong about things in history, which always seems strange to people. But I said, this was a void that I didn't even know that I had. Mm. Perhaps outside of this little corner of Northern Ireland, General Robert Ross is not remembered. And yet, John, he's your neighbor, so to speak. You talked about seeing the obelisk dedicated to him every day. That fell into disrepair over the centuries, for example. There's a little anecdote you tell in the book that I'll leave for people to read there about World War II and some American troops are stationed there. But tell us briefly, John, about his life and career that leads up to the Battle of Bladensburg, north of Washington, D.C. Yes. Now, first of all, you need to know here, Dean, he may well have been a local man, but I don't favor him because of that. What I is very, very clear is you need to examine the evidence very coldly and you find and describe the man as you find him. But I have to say, from his point of view, I I couldn't have found a more courageous gentleman officer. So Robert Ross had distinguished himself greatly uh, fighting against the French for many years before he arrived on, uh, on American shores. He was actually wounded in his very first battle in 1799. He was a man who was very much in the thick of the action. He later led a bayonet attack, a nighttime bayonet attack on a French position in Egypt. Now think of this, the men were ordered not to load their weapons, to maintain silence. Now, if the French had seen them, they were basically disadvantaged because they were going to be fired upon. But he actually led that mission and succeeded. He then uh, had extraordinary success against the French uh, Battle of Maida in Italy. He fought against them in the mountains and in the Pyrenees. And just shortly before he actually went to America, he led a frontal attack on French forces in this final battle of the war against the Napoleonic forces in which he was very, very seriously injured. As Chris has actually pointed out, General Ross was actually still suffering from a very serious wound and probably should not have gone to America because he was actually still suffering from his war wounds. But it's a measure of the man. He never knew when to lay down. He wanted to fight and fight for his king and country. And his wife wasn't well at that point either when he leaves to America. So this is another sign of how he answers the call of duty to travel all the way across the ocean. And she has a premonition. She doesn't think she'll ever see him again, which I suppose is one thing that links us always to people of the past is no wife or spouse left behind ever thinks that things will turn out well. You always have predictions of doom. Of course, in Mrs. Ross's case, it was to be proven true. He doesn't return from the Americas. As for the man, he is really a multidimensional character. He has this great sense of humor, which you touch on in The Man Who Captured Washington. It endears him to his men, even though he's a strict disciplinarian. He's drilling them. He's getting them ready for battle, but sort of having this fun side and not being a person who enforces every little letter of the rule makes him really beloved by all of his men. So, John, I wonder if you'd tell us that story of the incident with the donkey briefly. Yes, you've really hit the nail on the head there. Ross Lee 
leads his men. He's inspirational in the field of battle, but he's also very disarming in so many ways. He builds a fantastic relationship with them that, in fact, they admire him and they'll go the extra mile with him. They'll not take any uh, liberties with him, etc. But like most Irish people, uh, he's a great sense of humour. And he would have encouraged, you know, good fun among the officer corps. He would have encouraged a sort of a brotherly camaraderie in, in the ranks because at the end of it all, that helps with the fighting morale of the troops. But on one occasion in Malta, there was a number of different events happening. Malta, garrison life, and I'm sure there's many soldiers listening, American soldiers would know that garrison life can be pretty tedious. So uh, just the same for the British back then. So they would have had a number of masquerades and events. And on one occasion, some of his officers decided to bring a live animal onto the stage. This was obviously meant to be a surprise, etc. Ross was the commanding officer of the regiment. And as they were about to bring him onto the stage, they bumped into Ross. And people got a little bit, oh, have we gone too far here? I wonder what Ross uh, will make of this. So Ross looked very, very carefully at the, at the donkey and he said, why, I do believe that's my donkey. But at that point, he encouraged the men to go ahead and have their fun. You know, they took it. he took it in the spirit in which it was meant. It was meant to be fun. It was meant to be part of the atmosphere, etc. So he, he was a good, fun guy to be with. And he was dearly, dearly missed by his men uh, when he was killed. And I mentioned earlier about that horse being shot out from under him. That was certainly a moment where, had he lost his life then, there would have been hell unleashed on the city of Washington, D.C. So as much as people lament the fact that he burned the White House, it was his restraint continuously that keeps this civilized, so to speak. And this could have very easily gotten out of hand. And that's something you don't expect necessarily to find in history when it's a war, of course. So he has many moments where, although he does uphold honor very much, he's willing to be somebody that's accepting of kindness and giving kindness. And it really is a fascinating portrait of him. I mentioned earlier the Battle of Bladensburg, and this is where he makes his big moment. His wife, after his passing, includes that in the family title, and that's part of the shield that he's given there, or the, what would you call it, the crest of the family, the Ross family. family. crest, yes. So mm-hmm. tell us what happens, Christopher, when the British forces confront the American defenses there in your neck of the woods. President James Madison is there. Uh, I always love this image of the little Madison, right. of course, our shortest president. You know, he's on horseback. He has two guns strapped to his side, and he's desperately trying to rally the men. So what happens at Bladensburg? Well, the British have marched up from Benedict on the Patuxent. They had landed there on August the 19th, and they were marching up these hot and dusty roads of Maryland and uh, camped at several different places on the way. And on August the 24th, 1814, they came in sight of the American forces, which were over on the other side of what is now the Anacostia River, then known as the Eastern Branch of the Potomac. And the Americans had uh, mustered up just over 6,000 forces, but they were mainly militia facing the hardened veterans of the British Army and uh, also Royal Marines who'd been fighting the French for years. In fact, the Americans really made a fatal mistake because Secretary of War John Armstrong kept insisting that Washington couldn't possibly be a target. He'd sent 
the best American troops, namely the U.S. Army and the experienced troops, up to Canada to fight the British up there. And there's a big controversy between myself and other historians. I feel that the Americans would have taken Canada if they could have got it. Don Hickey, who's the top American historian on the war, feels that mm, the Americans would have just used Canada as a counter and they would have given it back. So that's an ongoing debate. But the thing is that, as I say, these were inexperienced American troops, many of them not really seen a shot in anger. And here they were, 6,000 of them, facing these 4,000 British who were about to come across the river. It's a perilous situation, but nevertheless, the American commander, Brigadier General William H. Winder, felt that the Americans could win because they had more troops. But it was a chaotic situation. They just got pushed back and pushed back. And eventually, the battle has the reputation from a... 1816 poem, the Bladensburg races, because many of the militia simply ran. Dean, could I come in there as well? It's very interesting in relation to the Bladensburg races. From my understanding of what Americans would know, you know, generally know about the War of 1812, because very much it's a forgotten war in America as, as well, they would know the story of Dolly Madison perhaps saving the portrait of George Washington from the White House. Her husband, President Madison, at the time came out of it very poorly, and he was branded as the winner of the Bladensburg races. In other words, he was the one who first fled from the British and set a very, very bad example. Chris and I worked hard to, well, we we didn't deliberately try to find the following out, but we found it out. President Madison took great personal risks that day. Indeed, not only did Ross capture Washington, Ross almost captured the president. Now, you think of that in American history. General Ross came within a herd's breadth of actually cap- capturing the American president. They called it disparagingly Mr. Madison's war afterwards, yes. and they ripped him a lot. And Armstrong is so easy to mock and laugh at, and much of it deserved. When you mm. start reading the War of 1812, you say this guy didn't really – wasn't prepared at all. They're, they're not going to go to Washington, D.C. Why would they bother? doesn't prepare. And so I, I was very glad to read that in the book because Madison, here's this very bookish guy, no military experience, and he does go there and try to do his best – George Washington impressions and does for a brief time, as I learned from the man who captured Washington, rally the troops, but they're just very much overmatched by the weapons and the hardened tactics of the British, aren't they? Go ahead, Chris, that's you. (laughs) Yeah, I always say that Jefferson and Madison were the most unmilitary of men. They weren't strategists in any sense. And Jefferson made the statement in a letter to his friend William Duane at the beginning of the war that the capture of Canada would be a mere matter of marching. Of course, it took a lot more than that. Uh, the Americans failed quite a number of times to try to um, invade Canada and they didn't succeed. And they were uh, beaten back by minimal British forces, which were well mustered by General Prevost, the Governor General of Canada. Jefferson and Madison were both whizzes of the Constitution, but not good at military matters. I wanted to mention briefly, we talked about Mrs. Ross, General Ross's wife. There are several pictures in the book, and maybe it's the child in me, but I'm always still happy to open a book and find 
beautiful pictures and lithographs. The picture of Mrs. Ross is just barely a pencil sketching. It's very light and it looks to me as if it's somebody who is literally fading from history. Christopher mentioned to me that it's the only known illustration of her that we know a little bit about what she looks like. I'd ask you both the question about how the Americans are still bewildered after 200 years about how this tiny force of General Ross has manages to pull off this incredible coup of capturing Washington, D.C. Obviously, it wasn't our Washington, D.C. that we know today. But Chris, you first explain how this is possible for the modern American to understand. Well, first of all, it has to be said that the British themselves were startled and amazed that they actually did it. And Ross actually disobeyed orders in going ahead and doing the attack on Washington. His orders were to stay near the shipping, and the first target was to be Commodore Joshua Barney's flotilla on the Patuxent, and it was the destruction or capture of the flotilla that was the first target. But it's just that Admiral Coburn, commanding the naval forces on the Patuxent, as he had also been commanding the British Navy in the Chesapeake for about 18 months had been aching to attack Washington, and he just felt that they were so close to Washington that they should go on and indeed make an attempt at Washington, D.C. In The Man Who Captured Washington, you gentlemen describe General Ross as, quote, a reluctant arsonist. We look at him and we think, well, this must have been somebody who just loved watching fire. I think we all know that sort of boy from when we were children, but he's really forced into his actions by his orders that we talked about earlier, but also by the fact that those American troops that you're talking about, when they invade Canada, they burn a lot of buildings indiscriminately, including the capital of what was then called Upper Canada in the city of York. Yep. They capture the mace of the speaker, which, by the way, to people listening at home, is not returned until FDR is president <laughs> when we see the special relationship come. So, Ross does show that restraint that we talked about. He restrains his men. He avoids a massacre. He burns only 5% of the buildings you mentioned in The Man Who Captured Washington, which I found an incredible number because when we hear he burned Washington, we picture no two cinders standing still. So, Christopher, to you I ask, does the true picture of this merciful, honorable General Ross surprise people you speak to in the Baltimore, D.C. area who have this impression of him as almost a war criminal? Well, I mean, first of all, as we mentioned in the book, there's a dramatic difference between the way Baltimoreans think of Ross and the way Washingtonians at the time thought of him, because everybody that he met in Washington liked him and found him a very personable and polite man, whereas because he failed to capture Baltimore, they still have the impression that he was an, an incendiarist, he was a man who was going to wreak havoc on Baltimore and so on, and we just feel that if Baltimoreans had had the chance to meet him, they would have had a very different impression. My guests are John McCavitt and Christopher T. George. They are co-authors of The Man Who Captured Washington, Major General Robert Ross, and The War of 1812. You can follow them on Twitter at John underscore McCavitt and C. Thompson George, or visit their website, themanwhocapturedwashington.com. Charles P. Niemeyer, author of 
War in the Chesapeake, the British Campaign to Control the Bay, 1813 to 1814, highly recommends The Man Who Captured Washington and writes, This superbly researched book will become the definitive history of the life of British Major General Robert Ross, a little-known and underappreciated figure of great importance in the War of 1812. John, I'd like you to comment a little bit on that little-known and underappreciated angle. How do local people there in Ross Draver, did I get it right that time? (laughs) (laughs) How do they feel about the interest in General Ross being renewed here as a result of your research and Christopher's research and the book coming out? Well, let me put it this way. I never saw the monument to General Ross up close until 2008. There was so much uh, overgrown vegetation, etc. His monument had been totally neglected. Part of it comes down to our own difficulties here in Northern Ireland during our troubles. General Ross was a British soldier. Restraver nowadays would have a large uh, majority of Irish nationalist stroke Republican. I don't know if you understand all those complexities, uh, Dean, perhaps from your visits to Ireland you do. So, in fact, there was very, very little interest in General Ross whatsoever. Indeed, I'll actually tell you this. In Kilbrony Parish Church here in the village, a church of Ireland here in the village, General Ross actually granted the land that the church was built on. There are two monuments to General Ross. One of them is the obelisk, a 100-foot obelisk, but one of them is actually a monument inside that church. And I have spoken to a lot of those parishioners, and they have told me up until I started to do this research, they knew nothing about him whatsoever. This man has been obliterated because of our own difficulties here. We've enough difficulties with our modern history without maybe touching into, into things that happened hundreds of years ago. But having said that, there is tremendous uh, renewed interest in him. There are still some people who believe he's a red coat, he's a ruthless red coat, he's bloodthirsty. All of those things that Americans might have thought about General Ross in, in America, I can tell you there are quite a number of people who to this day, and despite my research and that of Chris, would simply have that view. Having said that, a lot of other people are very much open-minded about it. And what we did when we were doing the bicentenary commemoration, we linked Restrever with Baltimore. Governor O'Malley, who recently stood down from the presidential election campaign, we met him and he was obviously responsible for the bicentennial commemorations in Baltimore. And when we had the commemoration here in Restrever on the, uh, off the American national anthem, we had thousands of people who turned out at the obelisk in Restrever. Thousands of people who never, ever previously set foot at the obelisk. And by the way, as for the obelisk, if people wish to see it, one thing I noticed when I began to follow you on Twitter at John underscore McCavitt, you have a beautiful picture of it sort of rising there from the middle of the glade in Ireland. And it's just a wonderful sight to be able to see it once you get to know him. I mean, if he wasn't such a dynamic character and somebody you really liked and you think he would have given you a fair shake, if you had to be captured by anybody in history and you were an honorable soldier, I think that Robert Ross would be at the top of your list. So that's something that people can go to and look at and see where here's this obelisk that stands from 200 years ago to a forgotten figure. And then you read everything about his wife and her loving him so much and receiving this title and receiving these accolades in the war. It really is a fascinating story. And I think it's great that there is an obelisk there that remembers him. 
Yes, and, and the obelisk actually stands on the site of his proposed country residence that he was hoping to build when he retired. And it's actually, let's put it this way, in real estate terms, where the obelisk is now would probably sell for about uh, $1.5 million. Wow. Yeah. It's a spectacular view down Carlingford Lock. So that's the sign of the of the real estate value of where that obelisk is. Well, I have to say I'm kicking myself. I went through with my friend Brian Darty. That was my second trip to Ireland. My first was with the Rutgers University marching band. We played the halftime at the Emerald Isle Classic in 1989. Then I went again with Brian in 97, and that's when I made it up through Belfast and Northern Ireland. So I'm kicking myself because that would have certainly been something I would have stopped at on the way. So next time for sure. But in the aftermath of capturing Washington, D.C., General Ross presses north in his own way. We were talking about north geographically there, going into Northern Ireland. Uh, of course, General Ross is not driving a little Opal Corsa, which yeah. Brian and I were driving. But anyway, he has a real military force there. He wheels his men around and also an inspiring moment that shows what a great commander he is. His men are willing to forego sleep, forego food, and just press north because he's waiting for this American counterattack that never comes. He's quoted on this march as saying, I don't care if it rains militia, I will sup in Baltimore tonight or in hell. Christopher, give us some background on that quote. It sounds very good, as things in history often do, but they may not be the full story. What is it for Ross? Will it be hell or will it be Baltimore that night as he's moving on the city? Well, first of all, we should mention that he didn't march or ride directly from Washington to Baltimore. In fact, they went back to their ships on the Patuxent, and there was some delay of some two and a half weeks because they also had to wait for the squadron that had gone up to Alexandria and forced the capitulation of Alexandria. And that squadron happened to include several of the bomb ships that they would need to bombard Fort McHenry. So those critical days allowed the Americans to gather in Baltimore and to protect the city. But sure enough, on the uh, morning of September the 12th, as I say, about two and a half weeks after they got back to their ships, the British Royal Navy anchored off North Point, southeast of Baltimore, and General Ross rode ahead while Colonel Brooke took care of landing the rest of the troops. And it was while having breakfast at the Gorsuch farm that those words, I will sup in Baltimore or in hell, were allegedly spoken by General Ross. And also he interrogated, along with Admiral Coburn, three captured American dragoons. He asked them who was defending Baltimore, and he was told that they were mostly militia. And he said, I don't care if it rains militia. These quotes have been repeated time and time again for the last 200 years. Whether he actually said them or not, I don't know. We have not been able to prove that they were said, but they sound more like things that Coburn would have said. He had a, a more brash and arrogant nature. So whether they've been misattributed to Ross or not, we don't know. But nevertheless, this is the way history records it, whether it was said by the general or not. 
talk a little bit about his relationship with the Navy side of this, something we forget. You can choose one of you would like to talk a little bit about this conflict that he has there between the Navy and the Army as he's advancing and as he captures Washington. Who's going to take the credit? Because that's also a very interesting story in The Man Who Captured Washington. Chris has actually mentioned there Rear Admiral Coburn. Rear Admiral Coburn was a great self-publicist. Quite apart from the fact he's a very talented person, there's no doubt about it, Rear Admiral Coburn, you'd want to have him on your side rather than, than against you. We have to understand here, it's the fact that Ross dies so soon after capturing the American capital that allows the Navy side of things to grab the glory. Could I say, with you that, say to you that for a short time in Britain, when it was found out that General Ross captured Washington, he was elevated almost on a par with the Duke of Wellington. He was a national hero. Wow. The point is, he never lived to cash in, and I say that loosely, on his fame. I actually believe he would have gone on to be a very important person in British politics had he survived. So what you have is you have the Navy side of things who have dominated the historical narrative. And it's almost as if Ross is a lapdog to Rear Admiral Coburn. Indeed, that in fact, Coburn was actually leading the land campaign. Coburn accompanied Ross. Coburn was a naval officer. He had no land authority. Ross was the main man there. Having said that, Coburn was a source of encouragement at different times to Ross and said, like, go for it. But let's remember here, Dean, go for it. What happens if it doesn't work out? Ross was very conscious that if he'd actually lost the Battle of Bladensburg, he would have been a court-martialed. Okay, his entire reputation would have been on the line. Coburn and Ross got along superbly well together. But the historical narrative until this day has been whatever credit, and I use that term loosely, that the British had for capturing Washington has largely gone to the Navy, even though it was an army achievement. That moment that he dies, that he gets killed in battle, that's one of the images in the book, and it's him falling off his horse into the arms of one of his men. His horse was also, as a former horseman myself and an animal science major, is described in the book as looking for him and missing him and uh, what a great horseman he is and how much he loves horses. It's very moving from my perspective, but he's unfortunately mortally wounded there. The rocket is blazing overhead in this illustration of his final moments. This fearsome new weapon, the rockets, this shocked not only the American militia, who we talked about being kind of well, just citizen soldiers, right? But also hardened French troops. And this is something I had not heard about before. You get the impression that the militia were just a bunch of uh, losers, frankly. You just think, oh, gosh, they ran away. We we all think we would have been tougher. But in fact, these rockets were a fearsome new weapon. They also scared hardened French troops when the British employed them. And so talk a little bit about that. Talk about that final scene. Talk about when General Ross is mortally wounded and the aftermath. Well, we have to say that that particular image maybe is a little bit romanticized. The British would not have employed their rockets until about an hour later when the actual Battle of North Point started and the British troops met the Americans under Brigadier General John Stricker. So um, that's a little bit of artist license there. But nevertheless, it was a terrifying new weapon, even though the Duke of Wellington made the point that because the, uh, the rocket were not well directed, 
they were like a bottle rocket. They had a stick. And so they often wavered off course in kind of serpentine motion. And although the scream and so on would have frightened opposition troops, they weren't likely to hit the target in many uh, instances. And the Duke of Wellington made the statement that if you fired uh, a rocket at the Houses of Parliament, you couldn't hit it. (laughs) So that was the uh, situation. But nonetheless, it was a new type of uh, weapon and also the mortar bombs, what they called carcasses, which were even larger mortar bombs that were fired at Fort McHenry, were also a terrifying weapon. And one of the British admirals boasted that they would shake the houses of Baltimore, much as they had the houses of Copenhagen a few years earlier. You have led me perfectly to the rocket's red glare in the Star Spangled Banner. Francis Scott Key, who wrote the lyrics to what would become the American National Anthem, crosses paths with Ross three times. So, Christopher, since you're there at the scene of the action, since you are familiar with Fort McHenry, which is one of the historic sites that brought him to the attention of you, Talk about the final meeting between them and the impact it had on Key's writing what would become the American National Anthem. We believe the last time that they actually encountered each other, Ross was dead and was being brought on board the vessel, the British flagship. And uh, Key could tell from an anecdote that he told to a lawyer years later how much it affected British troops to see the much-loved general being brought on board. We believe this anecdote is true because he correctly states the wounds that Ross received, that he was shot through the arm and the bullet entered his chest. I was lucky enough to be able to purchase from Sotheby's in London a, a dispatch written by the surgeon who attended to him Hmm. who told in gruesome detail, if you will, how this particular bullet lodged in Ross's spine. There's been a long debate for years here in Baltimore whether he was shot by a rifleman or a musket. And we believe from this letter that it shows that it actually was a musket ball and not a rifle ball. Actually, I must back up a little bit. Of course, it was the um, arrest of Dr. Beans in Upper Marlborough that led to Francis Scott Key going out to the British ships to affect the release of Dr. Beans. Dr. Beans had written an agreement with the British and other citizens of Upper Marlborough that they wouldn't act with hostility to the British when the British camped in Upper Marlborough and British General Ross used Dr. Beans' home as his headquarters. But then Ross was shocked several weeks later when they were going back to their ships and Beans arrested several British stragglers and flung them in jail. And this was seen as an act of treachery. And that's what led to uh, Beans being arrested and thrown in the hold of the British flagship. The American John Skinner went out, Colonel Skinner went out with Francis Scott Key to negotiate the release of Dr. Beans, and they were kept on board the flagship even after they affected the release and were brought up to Baltimore, and that's when Francis Scott Key witnessed the terrific bombardment that took place over 25 hours of Fort McHenry. 
And that's where we see, don't get the idea that Robert Ross is a pushover. This is still a war, but if you keep your word with him, he is a good enemy to have or an honorable enemy, but break your word as he was convinced that Dr. Beans had, and he is going to retaliate with the full force of what's allowed to him under military rules. So that was interesting because there's people there. We forget maybe the common people. He's looking desperately, for instance, for somebody to surrender the city to him and the mayor and the president just bug out of town. Yep. And so Dr. Beans is another one of those just average citizens caught up in this shocking invasion of the capital city after Secretary of War Armstrong is so convinced that no such thing will happen. John, I wanted to talk about the aftermath here of the raid. The Americans are scarred by this, which is understandable and yet never occurred to me. And I don't think I ever read about it in any other book of history on the period. What becomes of Mrs. Ross? I wanted you to just talk a little bit about her and how she keeps her husband's legacy alive. I'm thinking in particular of that family title and crest. Yes. Well, as you mentioned earlier, Mrs. Ross wasn't well when General Ross went to America. What happened, and, and this is a very important part of the actual events. These are people we're talking about here who make decisions based on strategy, military strategy, but they also are private people, etc. So shortly before Ross went to America, as I mentioned earlier, he was very, very seriously wounded fighting the French. Mrs. Ross, who had been a tremendous supporter of her husband, and who actually accompanied him. Now, let's think about this. In those days, sometimes families had actually accompanied their spouses on campaigns. But anyhow, she travelled over 90 miles over the Pyrenees to go and see him. But ultimately what happened is she had what we would consider today, and I hope I'm not, I want to use a term here, maybe I'm not politically correct, but basically that she had a mental breakdown. And it looks as if she was incredibly depressed. And certainly throughout the whole time that Ross was in America, he was worried that she was going to commit suicide. It's uh, an incredibly uh, sort of emotional story on a human level. We've never discovered a letter from Mrs. Ross to General Ross. I believe that she destroyed those letters. In fact, we have a family letter that said that in a fit of insanity, and the word was insanity, that she destroyed his letters. Well, actually, she didn't destroy all his letters. I just wondered, did she destroy her own letters to him? But she is incredibly distraught. And as you mentioned, that pencil drawing, it's such a poignant drawing. She's so sad looking. But basically, General Ross was given a knighthood for the capture of Washington. I believe that General Ross was probably on his way to being given a peerage, like a lord, etc. So Ross was, as I mentioned earlier, on his way up. But because he died, Mrs. Ross decided, because he couldn't use Sir, because he's dead, she decided, no, I don't want that. And she petitioned the Prince Regent that his family would have the title Ross of Bladensburg added to their names. And that was agreed. And all his descendants after that could be called Ross of Bladensburg, including herself. Now, this is very unusual because, you know, we have to think back in those days, women weren't entitled. These weren't days of equality, etc. But she then lives in the village. She actually lives in this beautiful sort of country home. She renames it actually the house called Bladensburg. She's very proud of her husband. And until her dying day, through the trees, across the leafy meadows here in Restraver, she could actually see her husband's obelisk, the monument that was erected in his memory. And it's a very sort of, on a, just a human level, it's a very, very sad story. 
Unfortunately, they're not buried together, correct? That's right. He's buried in Halifax? He's buried in Halifax, and she's buried here in the village. What's also interesting is, ultimately, Ross, after he captures Washington, he makes his way back to the fleet. As I mentioned earlier, he's desperately upset about his wife, and he just arrives back. He gets letters from Europe from his wife, and he actually picks up his pen to describe, this is his first letter to his wife, after he captures an enemy capital city. Let's be clear here. This is a man who led 4,000 troops to do this. It's an extraordinary. Now, I have to say, I don't want to belittle anybody's annoyance over what he does to the White House, etc. That's a separate issue. But in sheer military terms, how many people just like that have captured an enemy city? And he writes almost the first lines, he said, it is with feelings of most acute misery that he writes to her because he's so worried about her. And I actually believe that is an impact on his policy because the overall British commander of that expedition is another guy called Cochrane. Now, not Coburn. He's called Cochrane. And Cochrane was aiming for an attack on New Orleans about four or five months later. Ross wanted home. Ross wanted the war over. And Ross reckoned if he could kick down the door at Baltimore after the seizure of Washington, if he captured Baltimore, it would have been basically game set and match that the Americans would have had to basically sue for relatively humiliating terms. Let's be clear as well. This was not a threat to American independence. I want to stress that. But what I'm saying is come back to the personal level. He wasn't going to hang around for another four or five months to wait to attack New Orleans. And he went for Baltimore. He went for Broke. And that cost him his life. I was mentioning the aftermath and how it impacts the American presidency. You have James Madison being driven out of the White House and having it burned. And that doesn't look too great on your legacy. President James Monroe is the man who follows Madison, who has a big part here in the not very good defense of Washington, D.C. But President James Monroe is inaugurated outdoors because the Capitol building has been burned and is gutted. And that leads to the tradition of outdoor inaugurals that we see today. I think the last indoor inaugural we had maybe in the last half century was President Ronald Reagan because it was snowing and the weather was very bad. But there's also another moment in the election of 1828. President John Quincy Adams is running for re-election, and he visits the site where Ross was shot and where he later dies. And it's very interesting to me. You talked about New Orleans. Andrew Jackson, who is going to be John Quincy Adams' opponent in that election, or is his opponent, who he beat to win the presidency four years before, here, John Quincy Adams goes to this place where Ross has been killed, and he tries to pull off kind of a bit of political gamesmanship, and it backfires on him. So I wonder if one of you would tell that story briefly. You know, Ross has become a forgotten general. He was forgotten much quicker in Britain because Britain moved on, and of course we had the Battle of Waterloo and, and Wellington's tremendous victory. But actually in America, Ross was still quite prominent in the minds of the public and in the minds of politicians, etc., leading politicians for quite some time afterwards. So actually, not only did John Quincy Adams visit where Ross was shot, James Monroe visited there as well. So there was something about the significance of the death of Ross in terms of preserving the Republic. Listeners have to understand that this was the most divisive war in American history, bar none. And there was serious talk at the time about disunion, talk about civil war. So 
it's a very, very important time. But anyhow, John Quincy Adams goes along. He visits an oak tree that's associated with the shooting of General Ross, and he picks up some acorns because he's a keen gardener himself. And he actually later plants these in the grounds of the White House. So there are actually oak trees in the grounds of the White House that are associated with the death of General Ross. So there's quite a story there. But he raised this toast to the militiamen who basically killed General Ross. And you might think, actually, that's you know well done you, as I would have thought. But actually, it's a measure of Ross's standing with so many people at the time that there was almost a, an uproar in many parts of the American press. And how dare President Adams insult the memory of an honourable enemy? I think it's absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> it boggled belief to me, and it's bound to dumbfound your listeners. But at the end of it all, we can only quote from countless American newspapers at the time who condemned President Adams for being cold as they sought towards the memory of this honorable enemy. I certainly found Ross to be an honorable enemy, and he was an interesting man to read about here in The Man Who Captured Washington. I want to wrap up with one final question, and I'll go to each of you in turn. People love to read about the Napoleonic Wars, the American Civil War, the World Wars. So give listeners a one-sentence pitch for why this war, the War of 1812, and this man, Major General Robert Ross, are important for us to read about as people who care about history. To me, the War of 1812 is a vastly overlooked war, well, just as General Ross is overlooked. But the war is much overshadowed by the American Revolution with its outstanding figures such as George Washington and Benjamin Franklin and so on. And there are no really outstanding figures in the War of 1812, except perhaps Andrew Jackson, and he was mainly only fighting in the South and not elsewhere. You might also mention Winfield Scott, who was busy on the northern frontier. But the War of 1812 took place in various different arenas, uh, the northern frontier, the Chesapeake Arena, and New Orleans. It wasn't really a consistent war in that sense. But nevertheless, the Americans stood toe-to-toe with the British and earned a new standing for the United States amongst world powers. And they did it this time without French help, as they'd had in the American Revolution. So again, even though war is in the shadows of the revolution and perhaps even more so in the shadow of the civil war it nevertheless is a very significant conflict in the history of the united states john give us your evaluation for your british readers and your northern irish readers of why this war is important to read about why we should go pick up the book and meet general ross well, I actually think it's more important for Americans, actually. And if you ask an Irishman to give you one line, he'll give you two. So I'm going to give you two. <laughs> Firstly, if Ross had followed his orders, and his orders were if he had at his mercy a particular town or city, he was to burn the public buildings and the private dwellings. He was to raise whatever place it was, because this was in retaliation from the British point of view for what Americans had done in Canada. And while Ross very reluctantly, and it's quite a complex story, why he eventually even burnt the public buildings, because it was my view he didn't even want to do that. But he absolutely and totally refused to burn the private houses of Washington. Had he burnt the private houses of Washington, I don't believe Washington would today be the capital city of the United States of America, because 
for practical purposes, there'd been nowhere to go to govern. The capital, certainly at the very minimum, would have had to move temporarily. And it is very distinctly possible it may not have actually come back there. The second thing is, I would say to to your readers and to your listeners, every time you listen to the American National Anthem and every time you look at the Star Spangled Banner that's associated with that, you should think about General Ross's raid because that had a huge impact on Francis Scott Key because it's a sense of deliverance. And I'll quote here from some of Francis Scott Key's words in that. And he actually said, Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Remember the point I was making earlier that really America would have been in big problems politically had Baltimore fallen. And indeed, he even says, And where is that band who so vauntedly swore a home and a country should leave us no more? Their blood has washed out their foul footsteps pollution. Although it talks in, in the plural, I believe that actually, actually Francis Scott Key was thinking about General Ross as he wrote those lyrics. It is a pivotal moment. We could have lost New England that was just a hair's breadth away from declaring independence and leaving the Union. This is a moment where all the talk about moving the United States Capitol away from this dismal swamp in Washington, D.C., roads aside, it's also very humid. I don't want to rip my good friends here in the nation's capital, but <laughs> I think that cooler heads would have prevailed. Perhaps they cease this push. They cease introducing bills to move the capital after this. It really does make it a center of the nation for everyone after Ross burns the White House and burns the capital. So it solidifies why it's there. If people looking at a map around the world and say, that doesn't seem very geographically the greatest place to put it. It makes it everybody's capital. It makes the White House everybody's house, the people's house. So John McCavitt, Christopher T. George, co-authors of The Man Who Captured Washington, thank you so much for joining me today from two sides of the Atlantic to introduce everybody to General Robert Ross. I feel like I am a better person for having known him, and I don't ever intend to be commanding troops, but if I ever did, I hope I would do at least half as well as he did. Best of luck with the book and to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dean. Really enjoyed the conversation. A very fair-minded approach, which hopefully we've adapted as well in terms of the book. Good night from Ireland. Again, the book is The Man Who Captured Washington, Major General Robert Ross and the War of 1812. You can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even bookmark the URL from the banner ad on our homepage for all your Amazon purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every dollar you spend. Once again, thank you to both John McCabot and Christopher T. George for joining us and for giving General Ross the biography he's long deserved. Please remember to follow today's guests on Twitter at John underscore McCabot and C. Thompson George, or dig into the War of 1812 at themanwhocapturedwashington.com. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or at facebook.com slash history author. And remember, if you do subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll pop in next Monday for our all-new interview or come back for Classical Wisdom Wednesday and History in Five Friday. Until then, 
Happy reading, everybody. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the 